Um, we're going to be beginning a new study uh, today that I've actually been planning for months. And as always, I'm really excited to get started with this study. I know I say that before, like, every single study that we start, but I promise you, I, I mean it when I say it. I'm really excited to get started with it. And uh, the, the name of this series is kind of a, a play on words, if you will. It's, it's called I Know I Am. And uh, we've got a couple, uh, about a month and a half worth of, of lessons on this. It's about, uh, it's not about knowing you or, or me or knowing ourselves. It's about knowing the great I am, the one true living God. And, and you might be thinking, you know, that's, that's a huge subject. Uh, you know, trying to, to know something about God is a huge subject. And, and today we're talking about holiness. And holiness is a huge subject. I kind of felt like, wow, you know, there's this, this, this raging river that I'm trying to get just a little cup of water out of. Uh, and, and it's like the type of thing that'll just sweep you away because it's such a huge theme in Scripture, the holiness of God. Um, but yeah, it's a huge subject, and uh, we couldn't even uh, cover all of it if we had all of eternity. But uh, this is specifically going to be looking at, this study is going to be specifically looking at what theologians and philosophers would call the moral attributes of God. Uh, you guys all know what an attribute is, right? An attribute, by definition, the dictionary tells us that it's a noun, and it's defined as something attributed to a person, thing, group, etc. A quality, character, characteristic, or property. And so with that definition in mind, there are actually two types of attributes that God has. Two types of things that can be said about God, said about his nature, his existence, etc., etc. Uh, first, there are non-moral attributes, uh, which are said of the essence of substance and nature of God. And these are things that are exclusively God's and nothing else in all of creation can imitate these things. For example, um, you know, we might say that God is simple, which doesn't mean, by the way, that he's easy to understand. It's a philosophical term, which means that he has no parts or pieces. And that flows out of his infinite nature. And we all know anybody who's taken, you know, calculus or not even calculus, let's go back to algebra. Everybody who's taken algebra knows that you can't divide a true infinite. What do you get if you divide infinity by half? It's impossible. You can only put it in theoretical mathematics. You can't put it into an actual uh, formula. So we might say that he's simple. Uh, he's infinite. He can't be divided. Uh, we can also say that he's triune. Uh, that there are three persons within his being, within his nature. And again, these attributes describe the nature, the essence, and the existence of God, things that we can't imitate. But then, but then in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul said this, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. While we were... Yes, we were created in the image of God. Uh, we can see based on what we've already covered that there are qualities and characteristics, there are attributes that you and I, uh, by our very nature, can't have, but which God does have. And so thus we can't imitate him uh, in being eternal or, uh, or simple uh, or in having something called aseity, which basically means uh, that he exists in and of himself and nothing brought him into existence. He has always existed. He's also omnipresent, uh, present in all places at all times, which is also something that we can't be. The last time I tried, 
it hurt. Um, it didn't work, obviously. Uh, so obviously we can't imitate the non-moral attributes of God. The moral attributes, however, uh, are not only things that we can imitate, but which we should be striving to imitate in our daily lives. But in order to know how we can be more and more like him in these, uh, in these moral attributes, we must first know him and what his word says about him. God reveals a certain amount of information about himself in nature. In the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul tells us that his existence, his righteousness, and his wrath are evident in nature. So nobody can stand before him someday and said, I had no idea that you existed. And existence is one of his attributes. Uh, so that's something that would be uh, evident in nature, evident to everybody in every place. So nobody can stand before him without an excuse for not knowing him. But Scripture is the complete and final revelation, the full disclosure of God and his character and his nature as we can know, understand, and imitate him. Rick Warren said this. He said, God does not want you to become a God. He wants you to become godly, taking on his values, attitudes, and character. So of all of the attributes in Scripture that are ascribed to God, there is actually only one that stands out among all of them as uh, being of primary importance, and that is God's holiness. That is the, the most important one for us to understand. We'll begin our study today in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll start that in a minute. But before we get there, before we start with that, it's important that we realize who Isaiah was and what it was exactly that he represented. Of course, we know that Isaiah was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, we say major because if you want to read his book, it's going to take you more than uh, 10 minutes, unless you're a serious speed reader. Uh, but he was a man of influence. He was a man of influence, and he was, by human standards, an extremely godly, righteous man who served the Lord faithfully. But prior to Isaiah chapter 6, he was already in the role of a prophet. He was already faithfully serving the Lord. He knew about God's holiness. He knew that God was a holy God. He had preached it. He believed in it. But he never stood in the presence of God to experience it. And this is what changes everything for him. The sixth chapter of Isaiah is the story of this encounter that Isaiah has with God. And scholars aren't sure if he had a vision when he went to the temple. You know, maybe he went to the temple and he's praying and he has this vision. Or maybe he actually gets swept up into a temple that's in heaven. And I guess it doesn't really matter for all intents and purposes. The fact is, he had this vision of the Lord standing in the presence of his holiness for a brief moment. <laughs> So we start in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered with feet, and with two he flew. The first thing I want you to see here, if you'll look up at the screen, or maybe you look down in your Bible, if you have your Bible there, is that the word Lord here is in, uh, it's got a capital L, and it's followed by lowercase o-r-d, uh, lowercase letters. And that means that the Hebrew term there is Adon, or Adonai, uh, which means our sovereign, or our master, or, uh, or our Lord. 
Uh, but sometimes you'll find the word Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, and when we see that, it means that the Hebrew name is Jehovah that's being translated. And it's the unspeakable name of God. If you were to, to you know, translate the letters from Hebrew over to English, it would be uh, Y-H-V-H. But the pronunciation Jehovah actually comes from taking the vowels out of Adon and putting it into uh, Y-H-V-H. And there you go, you have Jehovah. Uh, so Isaiah is beholding the Lord. He's standing before the Lord, Adonai, on his throne. And there's an interesting cross-reference that, uh, that can be made here. At one point in his ministry, uh, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah, actually from Isaiah chapter 6. And John follows that up immediately by telling us in John chapter 12, verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, his referring to Jesus. So in other words, John is telling us that it was Jesus that Isaiah saw in heaven. And while Jesus' glory is filling the temple, looking like a cloud of smoke, he's surrounded by angels who sound as if they look nothing like, you know, the, you ever go into a bookstore and you, you see these books of angels and stuff and they're all cute and pretty and, you know, they look like, you know, you want to take them home and kind of cuddle them. That's not what these angels look like. They've got six wings, uh, but only two of those wings are for the purpose of flying. Uh, the other two cover their faces and cover their feet as they stand in the presence of Jesus, Adonai, our Master and Lord. And so the angels are doing something very specific as they surround uh, Adonai. Isaiah tells us in the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, And one, angel that is, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So first of all, I want us to see, again, that the word Lord here is all in capital letters. It's all capital, so that means that this is referring to the unspeakable name of God, Jehovah, Y-H-V-H. So the obvious connection that only somebody who is extremely hard-hearted can miss here is that Adonai is Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. In other words, Jesus is God. But what are the angels saying? Look at what they're saying. They're saying that he is holy, holy, holy. They don't just say that he's holy. They don't say that he's holy, holy. They say that he is holy, holy, holy. And we know, if, I mean, if you listen to me and, and you know what I, what I, uh, what I preach, we know that anytime we see repetition in the Bible, it's because there's emphasis. The author's trying to uh, say something emphatic. Uh, how do we show emphasis in English writing? Well, you know, if, if we're typing something out, we can uh, put it in all capital letters. Uh, we can use a bold font, bold and italic, bold and italic, and capital, bold and italic, and capital, and underline. I mean, you know, we, we can do all kinds of things, but they didn't have that kind of stuff back then. That's not how they did it. Um, instead, what they would do, uh, or, or we can use an exclamation point, well, simple as that. Um, but, but Hebrew authors didn't do that. Instead, what they would do is repeat something to make sure that it caught your attention. They'd use repetition for emphasis. For example, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 10, we read this. We read, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. 
it is most holy to the Lord. Now, if we were to translate this literally from Hebrew, if we were to look at the Hebrew and, and see what it says exactly, that last part would say, uh, it is a holiness of holinesses unto the Lord. So there, there's repetition of holiness there. So the, the translators recognize that what the author is trying to do here is make emphasis on holiness or holy. Uh, it's something that's extremely holy unto the Lord. And so they translated it most holy. And so there's a great emphasis on God's holiness by the declaration of these seraphim who are around the throne of God. And thus they cry out that he is holy, holy, holy. And the most significant thing that you can catch here, if you know the whole Bible, the most significant thing is that this is the only attribute, moral or non-moral, that is given this type of emphasis. No other attribute is repeated three consecutive times in Scripture. You won't see anybody, any place in Scripture, saying that God is eternal, 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 or that He is love, love, love. And in our minds, you know, we, we, we kind of think that, you know, mercy and love are God's chief attributes. Uh, but this passage indicates that love, or sorry, that holiness is the one characteristic of God that He wants to put supreme emphasis on. There is no other attribute of God. There is nothing about God in his nature that is more important for us to understand than the fact that God is holier than we can imagine. And what does Isaiah see? It looks like smoke is filling the temple. And of course, this should remind us of the Exodus when they've got the smoke, right? They've got the pillar of smoke. It's the Shekinah glory. This is the Shekinah glory of God. And as he speaks, as God speaks, the foundations of the temple start shaking and trembling just at the sound of his voice. They've got the wisdom. These inanimate things have the wisdom to tremble at the voice of God. But they're not the only things trembling. Isaiah 6.5. Then I, Isaiah, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah is trembling too. And not just because the ground is trembling. He's trembling because he realized that as good as he might have seemed by, uh, by human standards, you know, if you were to compare him to anybody on earth, as good as he might have seemed, he wasn't good enough to stand in the presence of God's holiness. And so suddenly he's struck with this deep and agonizing conviction because he realizes that he's standing before his maker. And he knows, maybe he knows that Moses was told that no person can see the face of God and live. Uh, he hasn't seen a face here. All he's seen is a cloud of smoke. Uh, but maybe he's thinking, uh-oh, here comes the face. I'm, I'm done for. Um, but his first thought, his first thought isn't his eyes for beholding God, for, for what he's seeing. That's not his first thought. It's not the fact that he's seeing the glory of God right in front of his face. His first reaction is to think that he's ruined because he has unclean lips. A righteous man who recognizes that he has unclean lips. Why is he thinking specifically of his lips? 
Scholars have a lot of opinions on this, but it seems most reasonable to me to conclude that it's probably because he immediately realizes that while these angels are declaring, holy, 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 Isaiah's not worthy. He can't join them in proclaiming that God is holy, holy, holy. He isn't worthy. He's wretched, and so he declares, woe is me, thereby declaring himself cursed. That's what the word woe indicates. It's a cursing. He declares himself cursed. And this actually reminds me of Peter. If you remember what Peter did when he stood in Jesus' presence, he, he falls down at the feet of Jesus and he begs Jesus to go away. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It also reminds me of what James said. James said this, and I think this is probably what was going on in Isaiah's mind at this time. Uh, James said this. He said, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. The profane and the holy can't coexist in the same place. And yet Isaiah realizes they have in his mouth. The irony here, actually, is that in the previous chapter, chapter 5, uh, Isaiah goes through this series of woes that he, uh, that he declares. He says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with, ro- uh, with cart ropes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. So he's been pronouncing these woes on anybody who stands in opposition to God. The curse is on anybody who stands in opposition to God. And here he is unable to declare the holiness of God in his presence. So he says, woe is me. All these people who are against God, yeah, woe is them. But I am just as guilty. So his defiled lips uh, could only proclaim curses in the presence of God against himself. And all he can say is, woe is me. I'm doomed. When was the last time you experienced the weight of that type of conviction? And maybe you never had. But the truth is, our culture has seriously, seriously cheapened uh, the, the, the entire concept of holiness so much that it doesn't give us a sense of awe. It doesn't give us a sense of reverence or fear. We use the word holy to describe things like guacamole, and uh, Toledo, uh, and, and, and moly, and excrement, and excrement. The last one bothers me a lot, but honestly, they all bother me, because when we use the word holy to describe something that's unrelated to God, it's basically equating whatever that is that you're calling holy with God. It's equating those two things, even something filthy and disgusting. When one of the implications of holiness is absolute, undefiled purity. But the word holy means something much more than pure, clean, and defiled. I'm going to give my Sunday school students a pop quiz here. Uh, we got one back here and two back there. All right, guys, what does, what's the primary purpose or primary use of the word holiness? What does it mean? Bingo, separate. It means to be set apart, different than. Thank you, Savannah, good job. They pay attention. What do you know? Um, (laughs) so, So only the things, only the things that are associated with God are holy. And here's a newsflash. Guacamole is not one of those things. Um, his name is holy. 
His word is holy. His law is holy. His promises are holy. His ways are holy. His acts are holy. Even his wrath is holy. And his calling, his calling is holy. The calling that he has on your life and on mine. Yes, we have a holy calling. We have been set apart, declared different for the purposes of God. By the very definition of this word, then, we have to understand that if we're acting in a way that does not look separate, does, does not look different from the world, we're probably not acting in a holy manner. And yet, time and time again, throughout Scripture, God says this. He says, be holy for I am holy. I mean, I couldn't even come up with all the verses. There are so many. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. He says it again in verse 45. Chapter 19, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15. He says it again in verse 16. It's all over Scripture. Be holy, for I am holy. In other words, be set apart. I am set apart, and I have set you apart for my purposes. Be different. That is the holy calling. Does that terrify you? That terrifies me. You know, it's easier for us to look through windows than it is for us to look in the mirror sometimes. Yeah, this is a calling that absolutely terrifies me because I see how God is revealed in Scripture and I see a model that I am called to follow and I know that every day I fail. I can't follow it 100%. The temptation is to compare ourselves when, when, we, when we realize how... Difficult it is to be holy for five minutes. So the temptation is that when we, when we realize how difficult it is, we start comparing ourselves to the Christians around us. But honestly, nothing could be more foolish or more dangerous. Jerry Bridges says this. He says, quote, Many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and behavior pattern of the Christians around them. As the Christian culture around them is more or less holy, so these Christians are more or less holy. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. You see, when we start comparing ourselves to others around us and imitating them and conforming to them, we start comparing ourselves to someone other than Jesus. And so we end up becoming like someone other than Jesus. Peter said this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He said, for you have been called, you have been called, he's talking about the holy calling, for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus, becoming like Jesus. That's what this is all about. Hopefully that's why you are here today. This is the holy calling. And this holy calling has Isaiah scared beyond his wildest imagination. Who on their own is clean enough that they can stand in the presence of the holy, holy, holy one? Nobody. Nobody. Isaiah represents the most righteous guy imaginable. So not even the most righteous person we can think of on their own 
can stand before God. See, we, we tend to, to, uh, to think that we can just be casual about following Jesus. This is what happens. You know, you, you start out on fire for Jesus when you're saved, and over time, you become more and more and more casual, and you, you just kind of start coasting. So many people do it. But then Jesus, he eliminated any thought that we can be casual about following him when he said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? See, it's not as if God's holy calling the call to live a holy life is optional. It's not. So, so why do we so easily and so often treat it like it is? You know what separates people who take God seriously from those who don't? The fact that they take holiness seriously. And they strive to live a holy life. The fact is they, they, they just take holiness more seriously. We can't take God seriously if we don't take the calling to living a holy life seriously. And when we catch ourselves not taking holiness seriously, it should terrify us. Because continued, sustained growth in holiness, honestly, is the only evidence that we have. The only thing that we can see on the outside that's called bearing fruit. It's the only evidence that we have of a saving faith in Christ Jesus. And something is seriously, seriously wrong when we hit these spiritual plateaus, we get comfortable, and we just try to coast through our spiritual lives, not engaging in personal holiness. And that's why I think James said, prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. James chapter 1, verse 22. It's easy to hear it. You guys come in here and you hear stuff every week, but what are you applying same, same with me. It's like I'm, I'm reading. I'm, I'm, I listen to sermons during the week. What am I actually doing with that? Because that's what should happen. We should become doers, not just hearers. Don't just hear what it says or read what it says. Do what it says. And when I think of people in Scripture who took God's holiness casually, I think of Uzzah from Second Samuel chapter 6. Uh, there we find that the Ark of the Covenant, which of course represents the presence of God among his people, it gets captured by, the Israel, uh, by Israel's enemies. And Israel goes in and they defeat their enemies and they take the Ark of the Covenant back. And on the way home, the Ark of the Covenant is on this cart that's being pulled by oxen. And at one point, the oxen somehow, you know, maybe there's a pothole in the road, maybe there's a dip in the road, maybe they just got mad and decided to, you know, upset the cart. Somehow, the oxen upset the cart, and the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall. My question is, what is it about to fall into? Well, it's at least going to fall into the dirt on the road. Uh, maybe it's mud, uh, but knowing that oxen don't wait until they have a bathroom to go to the bathroom, it's entirely possible that the Ark could have fallen into the waste of the oxen. And so Uzzah reaches out to prevent this from happening, to, to catch the ark so that it doesn't fall into whatever. Why? Why does he do that? Because he erroneously believes that he is cleaner than dirt, that he is cleaner than mud, or that he's cleaner than animal excrement. So the Lord strikes Uzzah dead on the spot. Why? Because he took, because Uzzah took Obedience to God, holy living, casually. 
You see, God had given very specific instructions for how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be transported. It was supposed to be transported specifically by the Levites on long poles so that this type of thing wouldn't happen. And he had, they, they had the Bible, they had, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what it said, but were they applying it? No. They're taking it casually. And so Uzzah becomes a casualty of casual spiritual living. Uzzah took God's holiness casually, so of course he took obedience to God, personal holiness, casually as well. So Uzzah is a lesson in how not to respond to the presence of God's holiness. In Judges chapter 13, verse 20, a man named uh, Manoah and his wife find themselves in the presence of the holiness of God, and their response is different. It's not casual at all. We read in Judges 13, 20, for it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven. They're in the temple, and the flame goes up toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they, fall, they fell on their faces to the ground. Why would they fall on their faces to the ground? Maybe it's a sign of reverence, uh, but I believe that they were absolutely terrified. They were terrified. They were scared. And so as a result of their response, they're spared. In fact, they're, they're better than spared. They're, they're blessed with a son whom they name Samson. But they notice that they, they fell. I mean, it, when, when we show a sign of reverence, we'll kneel or you know, we'll bow. They fell to the ground face first. I think they're scared. Ezekiel, same thing. He's confronted by the holiness of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And he too falls just flat on his face in fear. And so Isaiah realizes that no matter how good he might have seemed in comparison to other people, no matter how righteous they might have thought that he was or he thought that he was, he was deluding and deceiving himself if he thought that he was worthy of standing in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God who isn't just uncomfortable with sin, but who hates it. Hates it. But Isaiah immediately identifies his sin and he repents of his sin. Woe is me. I'm cursed. I, I know that I messed up, but I, but but... Yeah, what am I supposed to do about it? And God does something about it. We read in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. These two verses, all by themselves, just these two verses, Teach us everything there is to know about God's plan for salvation. Where was the coal taken from? The altar. It was taken from the altar. What's the purpose of the altar? Blood. Sacrifice. Atonement. It's a place of sacrifice unto the Lord for the purpose of the atonement of sin. This is what a holy God requires in order for restoration and cleansing to be made. Next, the sacrifice is applied specifically to the place, the spot, the body part of Isaiah's sin, his lips. 
I don't know about you, but you know, our, our lips, if you've ever, uh, you know, seen one of those pictures of what our bodies would look like if, you know, where our nerves are, you know, had bigger spots, you know, lips are like the most sensitive part on our whole body. That's why we use them to, to kiss and things like that. It's because the lips are very, very, very sensitive. I can't even imagine how badly this could have possibly hurt, but I don't believe that it caused him as much pain or as much agony as standing unclean, defiled in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. But with this sacrifice, which is anything but casual, by the way, with this sacrifice, Isaiah's lips are cleansed of any and all impurities and his sin is forgiven. God declares that Isaiah is forgiven. Before Isaiah could be forgiven, God needed to deal with Isaiah's sin. He needed to make atonement, some, some sort of restoration for Isaiah's sin. And God was the one who dealt with that sin. It wasn't Isaiah. It was entirely God. Isaiah didn't say, give me one of those coals and put it on my... Nobody would say that, I don't think. He didn't say anything. He didn't, he didn't ask for anything. God took the initiative. God did exactly what needed to be done. It was entirely God. And thus we see, what we see here is that God supplies, God provides the very thing that His holiness demands. A holy sacrifice for the cleansing, the purification of sin. Let's continue in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. So first, Isaiah recognizes his sin. Then he repents before God. Then he's reconciled to God. Then he's recommissioned by God. I just broke my rule to always avoid alliteration. Um, It started with Isaiah finding himself crushed by the weight of conviction over his sin. Over a sin that people couldn't probably see. But Isaiah knew existed once he was in the presence of a holy God. Chuck Swindoll says this of this, uh, this passage. He says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. Isaiah has undoubtedly been absolutely crushed with conviction. But that's what he needed to feel. That's what needed to be done in order to become of use and service to God. He proceeds throughout the book of Isaiah to call God the Holy One 30 times throughout the entire book. And that's more than any other biblical author. The Holy One. That's what he remembered God as. God's holiness obviously made a very lasting impact on the way that Isaiah perceived God. I hope it makes an impact with us too when we see how serious God's holiness is. So again, I ask you, how do you respond to the holy calling? How do you respond to the holiness of God? Paul said this in first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He said, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Praise the Lord for that. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. See, the primary thing 
that distinguishes us as Christians from the world is the fact that we have a holy calling. God has set us apart for his purposes, for his glory, by his grace. We are supposed to be different than those who have not been set apart. We must be holy because the one who has set us apart for his purposes is holy. So what does it look like for us to be holy? Well, let's start with what it's not. A holy person is not somebody who comes to church every Sunday morning pretending like they've got their act together, uh, you know, uh, dressing, talking, and living by one set of rules uh, outside of the church wall buildings and, you know, another set of rules inside of the church building. That's not holiness. They've got a word for that. That's called insincerity, or at worst, hypocrisy. Not only is that the opposite of holiness, but it is a, stumble, a huge stumbling block for people. It's a wall that will prevent us from really growing. If there's a plateau that we've reached, this is it. This is why. This is the wall that prevents us from growing in true holiness. We, in some way, we're playing the act, whether that's just when we pray, whether it's when we come to church. It's because we're, in some way in our lives, we've become duplicitous, where we're chasing the flesh sometimes, and sometimes we're chasing the spirit, and we can't find that equal balance. No, the, 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 key, the key here is to live by the same set of rules day in and day out. Church is not a place. This isn't church. We are church. Church is a people, not a place. So let it be known that holiness is not a set of rules that we live by sometimes, but not other times. Living and growing in holiness means learning to love the things that God loves and learning to hate the things that God hates. God hates sin. He hates unrighteousness. And as Christians, you know, we will struggle and struggle and struggle with sin in our lives until we learn to absolutely hate it. Been there and done that. I'm still learning that lesson. I'm still learning that lesson. We will struggle until we absolutely hate our sin. We don't do things that we hate. That's, that's basic psychology. You know, if something is punishing to you, you don't do it. Uh, unless you have something seriously wrong, but we won't go there. The problem is that by our nature, so often we don't hate sin. In fact, I'd say by, by our nature, we love it. We, we love sin. But if we don't learn to hate sin, we will never experience victory over it. We will never experience freedom from it. And what will ha- ultimately happen is that we'll grow bitter toward God for demanding, for having this expectation that we be holy as he is holy. And you might not even realize that the root of bitterness toward God is there yet, but I can't even tell you how many people I've seen, I've seen this play out in their lives where they're struggling with, with a sin uh, and it's because they've grown comfortable with it rather than waging war against it. They haven't even tried to hate it. Uh, it's something that they're, they're totally okay with. And then when they start growing bitter toward God, they don't actually direct their bitterness toward God. Instead, they direct it toward people around them in all directions. So the lesson is to learn to hate sin, to, to absolutely hate it, because that is the key to uprooting unholiness in our lives. And that is the key to uprooting any bitterness that we might hold against God for expecting us to be holy. We cannot... We cannot love holiness if we don't love or if we don't hate sin. 
we can't love holiness if we don't hate sin. The degree to which we love holiness, this is serious, the degree to which we love holiness will always be equal to the degree to which we hate sin. It's like balancing scales. One goes up, one goes down. One goes up, one goes down. It's always like that. The degree to which we love holiness is equal to the degree to which we hate sin. So I want to close with this, and I want you to seriously think about this. Because we all struggle with sins. Anybody in here not struggle with sin? Okay. Think about this. And don't fool yourself by saying that you have no sin. We know what John said. You can fool yourself. You can't fool Jesus. How much do you hate the sins that you struggle with? How much do you hate the sins that hound you, that tempt you, that are always there? How much do you hate the idea? Let me ask you this. How much do you hate the idea of getting a sense of feeling deprived because somebody else has something that you don't? That's called coveting. How much do you hate that idea? How much do you, uh, you know, and, and maybe, by the way, uh, there are all kinds of ways that can play out. Maybe it's their job. Uh, maybe it's their, their spouse. Maybe it's um, their cell phone. Maybe, you know, who knows? It can be all kinds of things. Or how about this one? How much do you hate the thought of being with somebody other than your spouse? How much do you hate that idea? And for those of you who aren't married, by the way, the same question applies to your future spouse. How much do you hate the idea of being with somebody other than your future spouse? Those are easy ones. How about something a little bit more challenging? How much do you hate the idea of failing to submit to those whom the Lord has placed over you? That's a tough one. How much do you hate the idea of dishonoring a fellow brother or sister in Christ, whether that's you know by gossip or slander or whatever? How much do you hate the idea of sinning against somebody else in the body of Christ, dishonoring them? How much do you hate the idea of finding more fulfillment, more comfort by getting a big paycheck or having a lot of money in the bank than you do by being in the presence of God on a daily basis? Serious questions. That's where we find out how serious we are about holiness. How much do you really hate the sins that you struggle with? This is the key to living a holy life. Hating sin, loving holiness, loving righteousness. And let's just be honest, if we aren't committed to living a holy life, not only are we not really committed to living for the glory of God, but we can forget about any idea we might have about imitating God like Paul told us to do. If we're going to follow Paul's imperative command, it's an imperative command, it's not optional. If we're going to follow his command to be imitators of God, it absolutely must start with understanding, respecting, and reflecting God's holiness in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would shine the light into our hearts and any darkness that might be within us, Lord, show it to us. Show us our iniquities. Show us the things more clearly that we struggle with. And God, I just ask that you would shine the light in us so that you can shine your light through us. Teach us to be your people consistently. Teach us to love what you love. Teach us to hate what you hate. 
God, I pray that we would take your holy calling so seriously that it would change our lives. We love you and teach us, Lord. Teach us to live for you. Teach us to follow this holy calling. Cleanse us of unrighteousness, Lord. We thank you that you sent your son to do that. And so in the silence of our hearts right now, we just confess to you that we are doomed without your son. Without the blood of Jesus, Lord, we could not stand in your presence. And so I pray, Lord, that you would pull us away from those things that cause us to live in a way that isn't holy in order that you can be glorified in our lives. May we not be duplicitous. May we be a people who are solely devoted to you for your purposes. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.